Ehud was a left-handed man, that detail is significant, who got called to be a judge and then sent with tribute to an extraordinary obese, wicked ruler named Eglon, a sort of Jabba the Hutt, if you will. Welcome to The God-Centered Life with Josh Moody, continuing our study in the book of Judges. We're calling the series, Get Over Yourself. Today's study, Be Consistent, taken from Judges, Chapter 3. Josh Moody is Senior Pastor of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, and I'm Todd Bustine. We're glad you're here with us. Josh, the book of Judges is introducing us to some unusual bad guys and, uh, frankly, some unusual good guys as well. You refer to the gents we're looking at today as unlikely heroes? They are so unlikely. They're not the sort of people you would think that God would use. And how encouraging that is, Todd, because all of us feel that God can never use us, and yet, by grace, he can. Let's check out these Clark Kents, as you'll refer to them, Judges chapter 3. Here's Josh. Well, friends, we're turning to our Bibles now, and we've got up to Judges chapter 3, and beginning at verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for forty years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gerah the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh and to his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehad presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. At the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, Quiet. And all his attendants left him. Ehad then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, which came out of his back. Ehud uh, did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fall into the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. 
Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. So they followed him down, and taking possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab, they allowed no one to cross over. At that time they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not a man escaped. That day Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He too saved Israel. Well, I find there are two kinds of people in this world. Those who are too big for their boots and those whose boots are too big for them. There are those who think very highly of themselves and there are those who do not. And it is the lesson of this passage that we have in front of us this morning of the whole Bible and of Christian experience, of church history, that it is the latter sort of people, the humble that God delights to use. How surprising. He humbles us before he exalts. Humble yourself therefore under God's mighty hand, Peter writes to the young, that he may in due course lift you up. Who is it that God esteems, Isaiah tells us. God says, I esteem he who is contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. It is, Jesus says, the meek that shall inherit the earth. Not the proud or the self-confident. The meek. Yes, it is the latter sort of people that God delights to use. He is pleased to take the lowly things of this world, Paul writes in his letter to the First Corinthians, to shame the wise. And you see, it, it, it is that which these three very unlikely heroes in front of us this morning are recorded uh, and presented to show us. Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. You might not have got those names right if you've done a Sunday school quiz this morning, do you think? Not exactly famous, are they? And even in their own time, they were hardly the kind of people that the Israelites expected God to use, as we will see. They were unusual in various ways, and yet God took them and used them. They were not the celebrities of the Christian world with perfect teeth, smooth skin, and silky manner. They were rough diamonds. And so, this morning, if you are feeling inadequate, if you are feeling that your life does not amount to much, I want to encourage you that, as it is said, you and God are a majority. And that God may have you precisely in this place, not to be humiliated, but to learn humility in order that you might be exalted in due course. And if, on the other hand, this morning, you are feeling rather confident in your own abilities and in your own position, I want instead to challenge you this morning to depend on God and not on yourself and learn from the example of Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar what it really means to be used by God for great things. And it will be a surprise, I think. First then, Othniel. So look with me, if you will, from verse uh, 7 uh, through to verse 11. 
And what you'll find there is the first illustration in a standard pattern in the book of Judges. Pattern is this, the people rebel, the people get into trouble, they cry out to God, God sends a judge to save them. All is well as long as the judge is alive, but after he dies the people rebel again, and so it goes on and on, twelve times for the twelve judges. But here, in this little uh, section, as in each of these three judges that we're looking at this, uh, this morning, there is a particular emphasis on the, on the kind of Clark Kent nature of these spiritual superheroes, you know? They're very unlikely to have superpowers. Othniel, you see, is, verse 9, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Othniel is actually introduced three times in the Bible, here and in chapter 1 and in Joshua chapter 15. And each time it is as the son of Caleb's younger brother, every single time. Now, Caleb was famous. Caleb, along with Joshua, had been one of the two spies who had believed that God's people could enter the promised land and had actually done so. Othniel came from a famous family, but poor Othniel, he was just the son of Caleb's younger brother. He was overshadowed and overlooked. He had big shoes to fill, and the boots he felt, I think, were too big for him. Looking further into our first unlikely superhero in just a moment, but we wanted to take a second and let you know that you are listening to The God-Centered Life with Josh Moody. He's the senior pastor of College Church located in Wheaton, Illinois. Just a few minutes, we'll tell you how you can access some of the resources that Josh has pulled together to help you develop your devotional walk. Right now, though, back to our unlikely heroes. Here's Josh. You get the sense of this in chapter one. Uh, there's a little bit there where Othniel first remarkably wins a battle to win the heart of Caleb's daughter. But then in the, next, the very next verse, verse 14 there in chapter one, he doesn't have even the courage to go up to ask his new father-in-law, uh, Caleb, for a favor. And, and his wife has to do it for him. He, he, uh, Othniel's overawed by Caleb. He, he, he's desperate for the approval of Caleb. And, and still, two chapters later, he is just son of Caleb's younger brother, you know? That's it. That's all Othniel would ever amount to. Son of Caleb's younger brother. Except it wasn't, of course. What's this like? It's like if you're the understudy for a famous actor on a Broadway show. And the actor gets sick on opening night and it's suddenly over to you. Well, that's tough, isn't it? Because, you know, though you've learnt your lines and you've done that, but everyone there in the audience is thinking, well, who is this kid? I paid good money to see the other guy. Now I've got to put up with this, you know? Right? Or maybe uh, you're at a party and everyone's doing the introductions, right? And you're introduced as the son of the younger brother of someone else. How does that make you feel, you know? However good the other guy is, you know, there's the Mr. Senator over there, right? And uh, you're the son of the younger brother of Mr. Senator, you know, by the way. Kind of boosts your self-esteem, doesn't it? 
Now, some people, you see, have looked at this, uh, this little account here and thought Othniel was, was very privileged. He was kind of a, a part of the spiritual aristocracy because he was related to Caleb. And, and there's something in that, you know, well and good, well and true, yes. But I think the point is that he was considered one of those offspring of the aristocracy, as it were, who was never going to live up to his famous forebears, to the older generation. And he was sort of always desperately trying to prove himself. Why well, everyone kept on thinking of him as the just the son of Caleb's younger brother and sort of pinching him by the cheek and saying, you know, isn't he cute, you know? Uh, It can happen to young ministers sometimes when they go to a new church. Everyone thinks, oh, isn't he sweet? Poor guy's trying to claim the word of God, you know? It can happen sometimes to someone when they try and take over a Bible study group from someone who was a successful Bible study leader before them, and you can't quite take the new guy seriously, you know? Or maybe a ministry that someone else older uh, than them used to run. Often you'll have that challenge, the challenge of being considered too young, and therefore being overlooked. But he had another aspect to it here that must have really made him tremble in his boots. His adversary was the gloriously named Kushan Rishathayim. Now, the second part of that double-barreled name actually means the twice-wicked. Now, perhaps it was a nickname that the Israelites had given to Cushan, kind of behind his back, you know. Perhaps it was a boast that Cushan took upon himself. You know, he was, he was not the butcher of Baghdad. He was the butcher of Aram Naharaim, you know, thank you very much. He was not Conan the barbarian. He was Cushan the barbarian, you know. He was Osama bin Laden. He was someone who made you tremble in your boots, around whom stories had gathered, and who had become infamous as the double bad guy. And so poor Othniel was not only overshadowed by uh, his older, famous relatives, he was also up against, I suppose, uh, what you, you might call you know, a notorious wise guy. It would have been like matching Prince William against Mike Tyson in a boxing ring. There could only ever have been one winner, you know. Except, and you'll find these surprises throughout each of these little cameos, except it wasn't really Othniel against Cushan. It was God against Cushan. And so, verse 10, the Spirit of the Lord... Do you see? The spirit of the law came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. Successfully. Against all expectations. Prove them all wrong because of God's spirit. Now, what does this mean for us here? Well, perhaps the same as it's always meant. And that is that it is important that we learn to depend upon the spirit I know that may seem vague, but the Bible is very clear about it. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. Rather, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. It is not a physical battle, but a mental, a spiritual battle. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world or... Zechariah 4, verse 6. Not by might, nor by power, 
but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so, of course, you ask yourself, well, what on earth does that mean? It does seem vague to me, Pastor. What, what does that mean? Well, I think it means, at very least, that we pray. We pray before we do. We see prayer as doing. We pray after we do. We, we pray, really, truly, believing it's God's spirit we need. And we ask for him. It means we follow God's word, even when the Bible says something that our culture says is wrong and disagrees with. We still follow God's word. The sword of the spirit is the word of God. We depend upon the spirit. In other words, uh, we have an attitude in our heart that is reliant upon God's power, not ours, and that does not use the weapons of physical force or emotional manipulation, but instead the spiritual power of prayer, the word, and righteousness. Well, it's also important that we learn not to dismiss othniel types. I guess it is possible uh, for us to be snobs and find it hard to listen to anyone who's not from the upper class and doesn't have a kind of good family genetic heritage or something like that, good family background. That is possible. Uh, But it is also possible for us to sort of develop a kind of inverse snobbery and find it hard to listen to anyone who was born with a silver spoon in their mouth, who does come from an upper class background. But God does still sometimes use the son of the younger brother of an aristocrat. And we need to be ready for that if he, if he does. But I think most of all, Othniel here is intended to teach us that if you are young, don't let that voice inside win which says you are too young to be used by God for anything of any great significance. Othniel was young, and look what he did. If you're young, take your courage in, in, in both hands. Pray for the empowering of the Spirit and do what God has called you to do and be who God has called you to be, whether you have a lot of gray hairs or none at all. Well, now, if the first unlikely hero was too young for many people, the second hero uh, is uh, just too different, even a little bit weird, frankly. And so second, Ehud. And uh, this is from verse 12 to verse 30. And it has to be one of the most well-known and least preached upon passages in Scripture. Ehud was a left-handed man, that detail is significant, who got called to be a judge and then sent with tribute to an extraordinary obese, wicked ruler named Eglon, a sort of Jabba the Hutt, if you will. Actually, throughout the story, there is interlaced kind of gallows, dark humor, you know, as Ehud arrives with his sword strapped to his, his right thigh, and, and ridiculously proud Eglon can't resist the appeal to his vanity to hear this secret message. And so he receives Ehud in private, and Ehud delivers the message, you know, which is a stab through his stomach. That, we are told, in in darkly satirical detail, sinks right into Eglon's belly, coming out the back with his rolls of fat hiding the, the handle of the blade in the front. 
And then Ehud escapes while Eglon's servants wait outside to the point of embarrassment, thinking that Eglon is just taking a long time in, in the loo, as the British say, you know. So it goes on. And Ehud, with this uh, dramatic personal initiative, creating momentum in the, and confidence in the people of Israel, then gathers the, the troops against Moab and he wins a decisive victory. Now, if Othniel's victory to youth won peace for 40 years, Ehud's kind of weird Al Yankovic campaign got 80 years of respite from terrorism. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, well, what on earth is this, is this all about? Why is it here? It, it, it seems to be, you know... I was thinking to myself this week that the kind of story that I couldn't get away reading in church unless it was actually in the Bible, do you know? But the Bible, you see, is ever frank. It does not succumb to our disease of political correct mumbo-jumbo where nothing is ever as it seems. And words are used to mean something completely different from what they actually, you know, are defined by in the dictionary. The Bible's not like that. It, 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 it pulls no punches. It calls it like it is. This is what happened. You see, this story is telling us that even if you feel just, well, different, God can use you. That's Josh Moody, and this is The God-Centered Life. Uh, Quoting from that uh, passage, Josh, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Now, using our superhero metaphor, that sounds like a phone booth moment where you come out wearing a cape. Does that happen today? You know, it certainly does, and it's it's such an important reminder for us that we uh, live, when we live fruitfully in the power of the Spirit. And the Bible in the New Testament and and the Old Testament uh, speaks about the importance of being filled with the Spirit, with going on, be being filled with the Spirit. And uh, indeed, uh, when we're ministering the gospel, when we're preaching, there's an experience of an anointing of the Spirit, a special empowering. Read the book of Acts. Hmm. And so each, each time we start the day, uh, we should pray that we're filled with the Spirit. Charles Spurgeon famously said, why do you need to keep on asking that you be filled with the Spirit? And he said, because I leak. And so <laughs> each day we need that fresh empowering, that fresh anointing, that fresh filling. Okay, we've got two of our unlikely superheroes covered so far. We've talked about Othniel and Ehud. And I'm picking up that you're saying God isn't just overlooking our left-handedness. He's actually using it? Yes, he he uses our weaknesses. It's a great theme in the Bible that we shouldn't run away from our inadequacies and our failings and our weaknesses, but instead see how God weaves in his sovereign purpose even those parts of our personalities that perhaps are less attractive and uh, less powerful because it is God who uses us. So where we're weak, then he is strong. Mm, fascinating. Thank you for that. Fantastic, Joshua. We'll check in with Clark Kent number three, a gentleman by the name of Shamgar, when we get together next time. Prior to that, though, let's do lunch.
Uh, You hear that phrase. It's more than just getting a meal, isn't it? When you tell somebody you want to do lunch, it means you want to connect. You want to get inside of what they're thinking. Maybe catch up on their views of particular things. And that's exactly what Alistair McGrath is doing with his book that is our current offer. And that book is called If I Had Lunch with C.S. Lewis. He picks Lewis's brain, if you will, on a number of topics. The meaning of life, on friendship, on the importance of stories, puts together these chapters based on an extensive life of study of C.S. Lewis and uh, pulls some interesting things from this fascinating man. C.S. Lewis, we'd love to send you a copy of this book. Uh, We're completely listener-supported here, and so Josh picks out books that he thinks would be a nice addition to your library, and this happens to be one of them. If you swing by our website, guidecenteredlife.org, a gift of any amount, we would love to send you this book. I had lunch with C.S. Lewis by Alistair McGrath. That web address one more time, GodCenteredLife.org. Next time we get together, tell me, do you have a degree in Oxcode? We would want a Shamgar to get a degree, to go to military school, to learn how to organize a, a battle plan. And not just drop his pruning hook, pick up his ox goad, and off to the front lines of God's spiritual war. Continuing our look at the book of Judges when we get together next time. One more quick reminder that GodCenteredLife.org has resources for you. And this is your warm invitation to join us for the next edition of The God-Centered Life with Josh Moody. 